Hello everyone, I'm Matthew Delvedova and this is The Delhi Podcast. The show features people I find interesting in the world of sports and entertainment, health and fitness, business and startups. We'll discuss a wide range of topics including things like self-improvement and growth, personal journeys, pivotal career moments and much more. Thanks for coming along for the ride. Remember, if you enjoy this content, be sure to subscribe to the Daily Podcast on Apple or wherever else you listen to your podcast. All right, let's get started. Welcome to this episode of the Daily Podcast. Very excited to have Jim McKelvey, Square co-founder, director at the St. Louis Federal Reserve, founder of Invisibly, and author of the new book, The Innovation Stack. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Daly. Good to see you. Yeah. So Jim, can you, for people who haven't bought something at a coffee shop or a farmer's market or seen Square in action, can you explain what Square is? Um, so it's a way to get paid. Uh, it's a little credit card processing system that we started 10 years ago. Um, basically, you take a uh, uh, one of these little devices and it plugs into your phone. Uh, at least it used to. Sometimes like we we do Bluetooth connections if you don't have a phone jack anymore, but, uh, and you just swipe a credit card through. Very simple idea, I started it 10 years ago with my friend Jack. Um, uh, these days, it's, uh, the company has two major products. One is uh, this product, which is essentially now a, a complete system for running your business. It'll handle payroll, it'll handle uh, you, you know, your tax withholding, it'll handle your websites and online sales and things like that. Um, but we have another product called Cash App, and Cash App is basically a bank in your pocket. It allows you to uh, send money, receive money, uh, manage your money, invest. You can buy stocks through it. You can buy Bitcoin. You can do all sorts of cool stuff. Um, and Cash App is honestly kicking so much ass. I got to show you this because this is always fun to do real time. Like yeah. you, what you do is just open your phone and go to whatever the app store is. So I'm going to turn on the app store here. And, and, and look at, just look at the top, top apps in the world. Okay. Yes. So like number one, I think is, is TikTok. Number two is Zoom. <laughs> number three is Cash App. Like these are the, these are the top apps like on the planet right now. And I mean, I, you know, we're ahead of Netflix, Walmart, something called Venmo down at 24. They're not <laughs> even in the top 10. Like the point is Cash App, if you're not using it, you should be. Yeah, no, that, it's that's, phenomenal. No, that's awesome. And then something uh, I've found really interesting, I've been listening to the audio book um, and how you and Jack decided to work together, but didn't know exactly what you're going to work on. And yeah, when you were brainstorming ideas to work on, like what were some of the ideas that didn't make the cut? Uh, the one that we had decided, so we did a lot with, um, I, I did a lot with location. So I, I like the idea of using the location features of the phone to be, you know, sort of super specific. Um, Jack was into journaling, so he wanted to do a, you know, some, some sort of Evernote-like thing. Um, and, and actually, the journaling app was the one that we decided to do until I went back to my glass studio and was trying to sell a piece of glass, lost a sale, and came up with the idea for Square. Yeah. No, can you just tell us a bit more in detail? Because I, I found that founding story really interesting. So I'm a glass blower, which means I make art, um, which is another nice way of saying I make stuff that nobody needs, right? <laughs> so 
Like I sell stuff that is completely useless. It's pretty, but it's useless. Um, which means that if I don't take payment when somebody wants to buy one of my things, they don't, it's not like they go home and come back, right? <laughs> that sale's gone. So I was trying to sell a piece of glass and lost a sale because I couldn't take an Amex card and was really pissed because it was a big sale and I was very angry and I looked at this device. You know, we had, it was an iPhone at the time. I'm, I'm on Android now, but at the time I was holding an iPhone too. And my frustration was that this stupid thing wouldn't turn into a credit card machine. And what I mean by turn into is like my attitude towards these devices is that this device magically becomes whatever I want it to become, right? So it turns into a TV if I want to watch a TV show. It turns into a book if I want to read a book. It turns into a GPS if I want to, you know, find something. This this thing turn, you know, turns into a thermometer. Like this thing turns into whatever I want it to turn into magically. And it didn't turn into a credit card machine at the time. Um, so we created this little thing to connect it to credit cards because credit cards have, you know, mag stripes here in the U.S. They used to. And uh, boom, that was... Uh, that was our insight. Yeah. And then another thing that I, I thought was really interesting, how hands-on you guys were at the start and how you actually moved your family, uh, I think, for a month to China to yes. work on the, the hardware design and the sampling um, of the actual unit. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the company was pretty small. It was me and Jack, it was Jack and me. And then um, we had uh, about three employees. We had a guy named uh, Sam Wen. He was a, a more of a hardware engineer. So, well, he was, he was a software engineer, but he was working with me on hardware. Uh, we had a guy named Tristan. He was a software engineer. We named a guy named Robert. He was doing design. And um, it was sort of that group. The problem was we needed to build hardware, which meant we needed, we needed a way to physically connect to the magnetic stripe. And there was no sensor on the iPhone that could read a mag stripe. And since credit cards run on mag stripes or chips, like we had to figure out some way to physically connect to that, which meant a piece of hardware. Um, so I was the guy that had to build the hardware because I was the weakest programmer. Like I can program, but I'm not as good as the other guys. So they all stayed coding and working on software. And I was the guy that had to build the thing um, so I'm the one that made this device and made it its ridiculously small size, um, which I, I talk about in the book. It, it turned out to be, I think, an advantage, but at the time it was pretty radical to read a credit card with something that was, you know, less than an inch long. And so the, um, uh, the reason I moved to China was because U.S. industry had basically collapsed as far as manufacturing like there weren't the suppliers just the parts manufacturers just all the stuff you need to build something is in a city called shenzhen china and it's right outside of hong kong and basically if you want to if you want to make a physical object i don't care if you're apple or a little startup that nobody's heard of you basically get your ass on a plane and live in china um and so that's what i did i took my family my wife was uh, like eight months pregnant um you know a kid almost became a chinese citizen uh, but uh, it was a crazy time because literally what I could do in China in a day would have taken me a month in the United States. And since time was so critical, I basically lived in the factories and worked with the guys and worked on the assembly lines and designed everything. And, and you know, the speed at which we were doing stuff was so fast 
because I, I had all my equipment there. So it was just, you know, I could get a, I could get anything. It's fantastic. So, so the work you did there in say a month, like how long would that have taken you if you had to stay in the U S I'm not sure it would have been possible to do it in the U S cause some of the physical manufacturing just doesn't exist here. Yeah. Um, so I'm not even sure it would have been possible to, I like, I could have worked with a Chinese intermediary yeah. uh, from the US, but that sucks because then you've got this middle person who's uh, screwing up your ideas and getting stuff wrong and probably, you know, selling your ideas to somebody else. It's just a disaster. So I just did it myself. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, what, what can people expect from the book? And, and I guess, why did you write it? So the reason I wrote it was because something really happened that mystified me, which is that Square survived an attack by Amazon. So if you think about the things that you don't want to have happen when you're starting a company, probably one of them is Amazon copies your product and undercuts your price and adds the Amazon brand name to it. Like if they do that, you die. And this had happened in 100% of the cases before Square. And Square was the first company pretty much in history to survive an, a direct Amazon attack as a startup. And um, when Amazon copied our price or copied our product and undercut our price, like we almost expected to die like everybody else because the history up until that point was that every company was just toast if they uh, went up against Amazon. But we competed with Amazon for a year and won. And at the end of that year, Amazon mailed one of these little square readers to all their soon to be former customers. Like I gotta say, and, and yeah, I am hawking a book right now, so I don't wanna diss Amazon too hard. So I will say <laughs> out of respect for Amazon, they were pretty cool about the way they relented at the end of the day. Like when Amazon gave up um, trying to be the payments uh, competitor to Square, like they recognized that the best thing they could do for their customer was to make them Square customers. So they gave us all their customers, which was cool. Okay, but here's the thing that I couldn't explain, Deli, and this is, this is why I wrote the book. How the hell did we do that? Like, you know, it, it's, it's like, you ever see these videos of these guys who, you know, have these horrible accidents and live? You yeah. know, like take, guy gets, you know, like thrown off a bull or falls out of an airplane. Like they're, they're examples of situations where you think, oh, you should be dead, but you stand up and go, oh, I'm okay, you know? Um, and that's sort of how I felt. I felt like I'd fall out of an airliner and just like 30,000 feet plummet to the ground and then walked away. And I couldn't explain it. And I also wasn't willing to just sit there and say, well, it was luck. Because I don't believe in luck that much, right? I mean, yeah, we were lucky, but is that really the explanation? So I looked for other companies that had, had the same phenomenon. And it turns out they're actually a large number of these companies, if you're willing to look throughout history, like if you're willing to go back, you know, 500, 200, 300 years, there are examples of this phenomenon repeating itself through history. And so I did all this historical research, but then, and I, and I, and I, and I came up with this phenomenal pattern. I was like, oh shit, like this is really, this is really powerful stuff. But the problem with that is that it's very easy to delude yourself to think that you're right if you do historical research. Because what you do is you pick only the examples from history that support your way of thinking. Yeah. 
And since all the historical figures that I'd studied were long since dead, I couldn't actually ask any of them. But there was one guy who was still alive. His name was Herb Kelleher. He's the founder of Southwest Airlines. And Herb was still alive at the time. So I called up Herb and I didn't know if he was going to speak to me, but Herb was super generous. And he invited me down to Dallas and uh, I spent an afternoon with Herb and I basically showed him all my research. And I said, Mr. Kelleher, I think what happened to Square also happened to Southwest. Like, I think you're another one of these examples of this phenomenon happening. Like, do you think it, like, is, is, does this fit with what you lived through, you know, 30 years ago? And he got really excited and he, he was like, yeah, he's like, he's like, what you described explains a lot of the stuff about Southwest. It explains it in a way that I'd never heard before. And Herb was the one that told me to write a book. So really? yeah. he was like, well, you just can't sit on this. Like you have to now get out and share it. And, and, and I was like, oh crap, because <laughs> writing a book, like if you know anything about writing a book, it's, it's excruciating to write a good book. Like it's easy to just belch out crap, but you actually want something that reads well and is funny and is like entertaining. Like it takes forever. So I spent like two years working on the book and I didn't even write a book. Initially it was a graphic novel. Um, so I did the whole thing in, in, in pen and ink. It was, it was all cartoons. And the reason it was cartoons was because A, I think cartoons are more interesting than boring business books. And B, um, a lot of the stories that I was telling were about these epic adventures, you know, like murders and Nazis and cities burning down and exploding and, you know, like just stuff that should be in a comic, right? So I was like, oh, this is, this is good comic book material. So I did a comic. And I showed it to Herb and I thought he was going to love it because Herb had a really great sense of humor and he hated it. He thought it was, he, he was really, I think it was kind of angry. He was like, I think he was disappointed that I'd taken a subject that he thought was very serious and I had sort of reduced it to this sort of trivial form. And so he said, look, I can't stop you from publishing your comic, but I can ask you to leave me out. Oh, wow. And so... I wasn't going to do that. Uh, so as a result, I rewrote it as a book. But it's sort of a book that reads like a comic book. I mean, if you, you're, you're sort of halfway through it right now. You kind of get the idea. Like there's, you know, you haven't got to the Nazis yet, I don't think. But like there's, there's just all sorts of crazy stuff that goes on. And I don't think the city's burned down yet, but there will be a city that is totally reduced to ashes. You know? Yeah, I, I haven't got to that part yet. But um... Oh, and there's also a really dirty joke. <laughs> I, I slipped one by my publisher. I couldn't believe it that they let this. There's it, one in there. I'm, I'm, I'm embarrassed it's in print, but that's uh, yeah, in there, whatever. <laughs> With, when you like went back and I guess tried to explain your success, I guess why, why were you feeling like you had to go back and um, ex explain it or you know know why you had that success and, and built such an amazing company? Well, because what I did, anybody could do. Okay. So I'm not by any means gifted at anything. Um, I'm a pretty average guy. Um, and interestingly enough, the other people who I sort of worshiped as these sort of business deities, we're all very, very average folks. They were just normal folks, but it would, they were normal folks who sort of got in possession of this extremely powerful thing. They call it an innovation stack, but they basically, you know, got a hold of 
this tool that allowed them to build literally world dominating companies because of the power of this tool. So it wasn't that Herb Kelleher was, you know, sort of the greatest business mind of, you know, the late 20th century, but he got a hold of this tool and it allowed him to build Southwest Airlines. And it wasn't like AP Giannini, who was a pretty humble guy. I mean, he was, he was also kind of a badass, but like he was a produce vendor who dropped out of school at age 15 and he built the biggest bank in the world. And when I say the biggest bank in the world, you say, oh, who cares? But like everybody listening to this podcast, what you think is banking, your idea of a bank, being able to go into a branch, uh, withdraw money, uh, write a check, uh, save money, uh, take out a loan, uh, speak to the tell, like all that stuff that you think of as a bank, that was all invented by a kid who dropped out of school at age 15, uh, sold lettuce for a living. Like it was a produce vendor, not even in New York, but a produce vendor in California where there was like no banking. And then had this idea to build this thing because the normal banks wouldn't deal with people like him because he was an immigrant and he was like, you know, they didn't deal with immigrants. They were sort of, you know, uh, they, 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 they were sort of like non-persons in a lot of ways to the financial industry. Um, so like what you think of as banking was created by a pretty normal person who got a hold of this super powerful thing. So, so the question is, well, what's the super powerful thing? And that's how do I describe in the book? Um, and then more importantly, and this is the reason to write the book, is it's something that most of us can take advantage of if we find ourselves in a situation where it's necessary. And I say find a situation where it's necessary. Like most of your life, you're never going to be challenged to do anything except copy from the right person. All right. So I don't care what it is. You want to build something. I mean, I'm in a room right now. I don't know if you can see around the room. I'm in my bedroom because my son's playing Fortnite in the living room. He's making too much noise. Um, but like, I mean, look around here. Like this is, there is literally nothing original in this room. Nothing from the drywall to the carpet, to the Ikea bed, to me. I mean, nothing is original. Like I'm a copy of my parents that Ikea bed is a copy of God. Like there's zero original thought in this room. There's zero original creative creativity, you know? And um, that's how we live most of our lives. But occasionally, we get up to that edge where humanity has not solved a problem. We haven't figured out how to do this thing. And if you choose to step across that line, what happens is the tool set that you've been using your entire life becomes irrelevant. And in some cases, counterproductive. So, and this is what I talk about in the book, like in the book, talk about pricing a product. If you're in a normal business where you have competitors and other stuff, you price one way. If you have an innovation stack, you price a different way. If you have customers and you're a normal business, you treat them one way. If you have an innovation stack, you treat them a different way. And, and like recognizing when you're in a world where copying is the best solution versus in a world where innovation is the best solution. And I'm not one of these guys who's like, whines about innovation like oh we all need to be more innovative oh we don't none of that crap okay like most of the time most of us some of us for our entire lives 
should not be innovative. Don't try to do anything new. Copy somebody who's smarter than you and earlier than you and do what they did. Maybe you can improve it a little bit, but basically live with what's been done. As in this room. I like this room. It's great. No problems with this room. I don't want to make an original dwelling unit. I don't, I don't want to have original walls. These walls, drywall, plaster, they're great. You know, it all works. But occasionally, sometime in your life, you will probably find yourself in a situation where for whatever reason, the thing you want is on the other side of the line. And at that moment, you can choose to step across the line into this world where all of the stuff that you've been used to copying no longer works. And if that's the case, then you need a totally different set of tools. And that's what we talk about at the innovation stack. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And um, kind of brings me into something I was gonna ask you later on, but um, with that being said, like with education right now, I guess in colleges and being uncertain time with COVID and a, a lot of online learning, like what would you do if you were a college student right now? If you were trying to plan out the rest of your life, would you be trying new things? Would you be trying to copy some successful people in the field that you're trying to go into? So the best thing I did when I was a college student, and, and this was sort of luck more than skill, uh, I transferred from liberal arts to engineering. And I, I, did a, I was doing a degree in economics, and I switched over to the engineering school to do, do a degree in, uh, in engineering. And that was super beneficial because the engineering education gave me a totally different skill set and a different problem solving skill that I wasn't going to get in the liberal arts world. Uh, not to say that you can't, you know, do great stuff with a liberal arts degree, but you're going to have a better command of certain tools if you get it, you know, get an engineering degree. So like if you can switch, switch, most of you can't switch. Like, So then, then the question is, what do you do about college? Um, look, uh, the whole model of college is changing radically. I would say this, I'm glad I went and got my degrees. I've got two degrees. Uh, I've never used them in a formal sense because I've never had a job. Like I've never worked for anybody else. I mean, I did, I did for a time um, work for IBM, but I was working in LA and I was living in St. Louis, so this was this was way before telecommuting was cool. Um, so they couldn't they couldn't tell what I was doing at all. So I was, you know, technically I had a job with IBM, but I've never really had a job. Um, I think today, if I was in school, um, I would very very seriously look at getting. A, as, as, as much introduction to as many things as possible. So I'll give you an example. I went to Washington University in St. Louis. Um, WashU has arguably one of the best medical schools in the world. I think we're ranked number three. Um, I didn't study anything at the medical school. Like I should have done, like I, I have, the, I have this, this world-class resource 
and I didn't do anything with it. Now, it turns out we had a pretty good art school and I studied glass blowing, which is how I became a glass blower as an engineer. That was cool. But like, I would say if you, if you're, if you happen to be at a college that has a lot of different stuff and you can somehow expose yourself across uh, the gamut, uh, I, I would do so. I mean, uh, I would, I, if I was back in school, I would be hoovering up everything I can in the various departments. Um, the problem with that is you don't, you don't graduate if you do that too much. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do you think that's important? Uh, cause they're different, they're di different skill sets. So, um, sometimes the, the problem solving skills of one discipline don't work, but the problem solving skills of another discipline do work. So in the book, I talk about the concept of negative space. Okay, so negative space is, we can either express it as mathematics or art. And since probably most of you who listen are not really good at higher math, I'm gonna use the art analogy, but actually the Laplace transform, for those of you who are math geeks, like it's Laplace, okay? The rest of you can look that up. Um, but uh, let's talk about negative space from the artist. If you're an artist, it's very hard to draw something as it exists because you bring your biases into the, uh, you, you get the subjective perception of, of, of what the world looks like. And the solution to this, which is brilliant and clever and actually perfectly described in a book called uh, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, um, is you draw everything that is not the object that you're trying to draw. So you draw the outline. So if I was Delhi, if I was trying to like sketch your face, like I wouldn't draw your eye because I have this preconceived notion of what an eye is, and your eyes don't look like that. Your eyes look like your eyes, right? But yeah. but I have this bias in my head. Like the eye is this like oval thing with a little circle, and said, nah, it's not right. Um, so I would sketch around your. I would sketch the thing that is not your eye. I'd say, well, you know, I could draw up to here, and I could draw, you know, and you you start building by defining what it is not, and it's a super powerful technique and it's actually one of the ways that I used to solve a lot of the problems we have at Square, which is to look at this, look at this problem that nobody's ever solved and you sit there and say, well, if nobody's ever solved it, has anyone ever sort of not solved the opposite? So you take a double negative and apply. So that, that, that and, and, and the only thing I could say is that like, when I'm in the studio making glass, which I still do on a regular basis, I often find that the techniques that I'm using to solve problems in the studio will translate in these bizarre ways to problems I'm having either, you know, with a relationship or at home or with one of my kids or, you know, in a business or with the Fed, like I'm in the Fed now. So like the Fed, that's an interesting place to be in a pandemic, um, you know, like these are, these are good skills to have. And you're just gonna get more of them if you go across disciplines a little bit. I think that's really interesting. Um, and then how, how did you originally get into technology and, and startups? I know you mentioned the engineering. Uh, so I was never considered a good technologist. I actually wrote a computer science book when I was a freshman in college. Um, not because I knew anything about the subject, but because the professor's book sucked. And I thought, 
this is so bad that I can't let other students suffer. So I decided to rewrote, rewrite the textbook for my class, um, which was sort of stupid to do, but it turns out to be work. It, it worked. And the book, um, the book got me into, first of all, got me into the engineering school, but secondly, it got me this, uh, sort of undeserved reputation as somebody who really knew a lot about programming, which I didn't. Uh, but that then allowed me to sort of associate with the people who really did know a lot. Like I got into the secret club and there is like, I, it's not like a secret club, like, you know, we had a handshake or a dress code or anything like that, but it was this, all of a sudden I was with the elites. And what I realized very quickly was that I didn't deserve to be there because I'm not that good, but I also didn't want to get kicked out. So I learned a set of supplementary behaviors that kept me around. So it was really, I think probably one of the greatest skills that I learned was I can work with people who are way better than I am and still make them more productive. Now that doesn't mean I can do what they can do. It just means if you're on a team with me, you're going to, you're going to produce more than you normally produce because I bring a skill set that's going to help you. Like I will help you do things that you would not normally otherwise be able to do. And that's how I earn my right to be there because I like when I, I get into these groups and I, God, Jesus, it happens all the time. Uh, especially, especially at the fed, right? Like right now I'm on the fed. I'm around with these PhD economists that are hundred times better at, at economics than I am. Um, but I'm able to add value because I've got this, this weird skill set that I developed, you know, partially because I wrote a textbook and got an outsized reputation as somebody who knew computers. That's, that's really interesting. Is, uh, um, I mean, you voiced the book, which I thought was really interesting because a lot of authors don't, uh, you know, read their own audio book, right? But I, I think it's great because it feels like I already knew before we started talking today. Why, why That's did great. you try to do that? You know, it's funny. I just had a hernia operation the day before I did the recordings. So I couldn't literally use my voice because I couldn't draw full breath because I was in so much pain. I couldn't even clear my throat. So to me, the audiobook sounds like me when I'm sick, but, you know, I guess everybody's sick these days. So we're all talking through masks. So yeah, maybe it worked out. <laughs> how, how did you end up uh, at the Fed? I, I was amazed. So I got a call from the president of the St. Louis Fed, um, a guy named Jim Bullard. And he said that the other directors had, had asked me to join the, the board of directors. And I, I thought he was kidding. And then after, you know, 10 minutes, he was trying to talk me into it. Like he was like, well, you know, it's a service for your country and you'd be doing this. And, you know, there's some benefits here and you get to do that. And I just stopped him and I said, President Bullard, does anybody ever tell you no? <laughs> like, I mean, you know, this is like being asked to be ambassador to Sweden. Like, does anyone turn that post down ever? <laughs> you know, hey, come on, you get to live in a mansion and go to dinner parties. Like, who says no to this? Right. So, so I just said yes. And I was amazed that, but the interesting thing about the Fed for me was that it turns out they really sort of have a blind spot in, 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 in tech. And since I have had a you know, front row seat for a decade at what you know, Silicon Valley is doing, I actually am able to add some value um, and some comic relief. I crack, I crack some really bad jokes at the, uh, 
at the meetings. Has anything surprised you about uh, being involved there that you weren't expecting? I was not expecting the people to be so competent. The, there is a deep level of competence at the Federal Reserve that I was not expecting. The other thing is they're apolitical, which means they're not Republican or Democrat. So I was on the Fed when the Trump transition happened. And you watch the, you know, watch go from a Democratic administration to a Republican administration and all the sort of changes uh, with that. And I, you know, I knew Janet and I know, um, you know, Chairman Powell and, um, uh, and I knew, like I saw the transition and, and it was amazing how well they do. Like, you don't know how lucky you are to have a central bank this good watching our collective backs. Like, it's just phenomenal. And the rest of the world doesn't have it. Like no other country has this massive advantage. That's it's really huge. interesting. And then, well, um, Square Cash added uh, like Bitcoin buying and selling, I think in 2018. Um, can I ask you what you think of Bitcoin and its future? So um, I think a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, perhaps Bitcoin is going to be super important in the future. My only question that I cannot answer is how the governments will react. And the reason I say that is because governments take a dim view of losing control of their currency. And if you sort of look at the things that historically governments have wanted to do, the first is own land, right? The governments own all the land. Like you don't own the land where you live. I don't care if you live in a house. You think it's your house? You think that's your land? Try not paying your taxes. See whose land it is. Okay. Just run that experiment for me. Okay. Um, the second thing the governments like to do, um, especially because of some of the things that have happened in the Eurozone, is they like to control the currency. They like to know who's spending what on what. They like to be able to monitor payments, um, partially because it, uh, anonymous payments are a big vector for crime. Um, and partially because governments like to know what's happening in their countries. And given that crypto is a potential vector for a lot of stuff that government doesn't, don't like, I am expecting governments to at some point begin to regulate. And when they do so, I expect that regulation to cause some real pain because the history of government regulation, it's not like this precise surgical, you know, correction. It's, you know, they come in with a giant hammer and smash, you know, Hulk smash. You know, that's sort of how I see a lot of government regulation. Um, so I think it's uh, interesting times. Yeah. Do, do you think um, what the micro strategy uh, CEO did with buying, I think it was $425 million of uh, Bitcoin with his company's cash reserves, brings that conversation forward for governments? I, I, I don't think so. I mean, Look, you know, speculation, speculation, right? Yeah. Um, and I think if the Chinese government wanted to wipe out Bitcoin, they could wipe out Bitcoin. Yeah. Um, and uh, maybe they couldn't, um, but maybe they can. Uh, you know, maybe quantum computing can wipe out Bitcoin. Like, 
The only thing it needs to take Bitcoin's value down to zero is some glitch in computing. And, and you guys think, well, you know, those of you who are into cryptology or cryptography understand that, you know, the math protecting the blockchain is pretty powerful math. On the other hand, do you know how to use a qubit? Like, do you know how the world changes when all of a sudden there's not on and off in two states? Do you know what happens in a quantum world? Probably not. Neither do I. Oh, and by the way, what's that going to do? I don't know. It'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, can you tell me about the company you're working on now, uh, Invisibly? Yeah, so Invisibly is an effort to allow people to regain control of their attention. And what I mean by your attention is right now your eyeballs are being bought and sold without your permission or knowledge. And I think that's bad. And it's bad in a couple of ways. One is you don't know what you're being, how you're being monetized and how you're being sold and how you're being sort of treated. And the second is, and this is a problem for all of us, you are not allowed to exercise your economic voice. And what I mean by that is, you can't pay more for stuff you like and less for crap, okay? So like we all sort of think of the internet content as free. Oh, and sometimes there's an ad, but you know, it's basically free. But it's not free, it doesn't cost zero to produce. And you don't want to live in a world where everything is free because that world tends to uh, lose quality. So for instance, like you're spending your time making a podcast, you know, you spent some time, you know, reading my book to prep for this. You know, if you're smart, you're probably going to spend some time editing this and packaging this up and trying to, you know, make it good. And, uh, maybe cut out some of my more inane responses because they're boring, you know, like you're going to, you're going to put work into this. Okay. And that work has to be paid somehow. And if your podcast is really, really good, like if it's 10 times better because you spent the time to take this, you know, sort of raw stream of crap that I'm giving you and like edit it down to just the perfect gems. So you've taken, you know, a 40 minute conversation down to a 25 minute conversation, but you made that better for the, for the, for the listener. Well, I should pay you more for those 25 seconds or 25 minutes than I paid you for the 40. But how do I pay you? Well, I pay you right now by, you know, either subscription or going to, uh, you know, view your advertisers. And the problem with advertising is that advertising doesn't allow you to pay more or less. So advertising is monetized as, as a per minute thing. So if I, you know, if I roll an ad in front of a person, the advertising model says I pay per second of that ad. Well, that's like saying every meal in New York City costs five bucks. You know, like if you passed a law in New York City where I'm sitting right now and you made every meal $5, people would get all excited and go, oh, great, I'm going to go to a great restaurant tonight. And the answer is, no, you're not, because great restaurants can't afford to serve food for five bucks. Now, that doesn't mean we can't serve you something that will keep you alive, but all of a sudden the economic business model that creates great food goes away and the business model that replaces it is make the cheapest thing you possibly can because everybody else is going to be making the cheapest thing they possibly can and in no cases will they 
invest more than $5, but they'll probably invest like two or three bucks at most to, you know, try to get that five bucks because you've got this artificial cap. Well, that's sort of the media world right now. Like you can't create high quality media and actually earn a premium in the invisibly world. You will. So what invisibly is doing is it's basically giving people control back of their eyeballs. And um, the first thing we're doing is we've released a, a little test of that where we give people control uh, for a tiny amount of uh, attention. And we've got a survey tool, believe it or not. One of the side effects of Invisibly is um, we're predicting the elections within a point of final vote totals. Like it's shockingly accurate. Like I've called three out of three primaries to a point. Wow. And by the way, I just saw some shocking numbers. I don't know when your podcast is going to run, but right now, according to our numbers, Trump is ahead in a bunch of the swing states in a way that the other polls are not predicting. Like I'm 10 points over, I'm 10 points away from what the Washington Post is publishing right now. And really? we think our data is right. Yeah, I just, I just I actually called Marty Barron uh, last two weeks ago uh, to tell him, you know, that they should take a look at what we're doing because I think we're going to have a repeat of 2016. Although Trump is marginally behind in Florida, according to our numbers, but Pennsylvania, Michigan, like Trump is still ahead. With, nobody else knows that. With, I guess, um, the social dilemma coming out on Netflix, I'm not sure if you've seen seen that. but No, I haven't seen it. Um, might be good to look at because I think that's going to help people have a lot more awareness of, of where their attention is going and um, how they're the commodity, basically, that, you know, a Facebook or Twitter is, you know, tweaking things to, to get them to, to spend more time scrolling through, uh, through the content. So does it invisibly combat that? Um, well, in two ways, one, we're, we're essentially, if it works and it doesn't work yet, um, if, and when it works, it will provide a mechanism for content creators to be more fairly compensated. And when I say fair, I mean, the people who make great stuff will earn more and the people who make crap will earn less. And I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, now, as far as the platforms go, there's some sort of antiquated laws that allow the platforms to get away with stuff that I think is probably not good for society. <laughs> so, but I won't get into that because A, I don't know that much about it and B, my friend runs Twitter. So, you know. That's fair I enough. With, can you just, we'll finish out in a second, but can you tell me a bit about LaunchCode, um, the nonprofit you're involved with? Yeah, so I started a nonprofit about uh, seven years ago to give people free training to get them to be computer programmers, and then we get them, we get them jobs. Uh, it's completely free. It's open to everybody. Um, you pretty much need to live in a city where we have a center, although we do have some stuff online. Um, but the bottom line with launch code is that most computer training programs are disastrously bad for two reasons. One, um, they all tend to get corrupted by the fact that students pay tuition. And if you pay tuition, what happens is eventually the people who sell you the course, i.e. the university or the boot camp or whatever have you, um, will at some point lower their standards. So the people who pay tuition but don't really 
meet a high quality standard for learning the material, uh, get the graduation diploma, and then they go out in the market and screw things up for the people who really know stuff. So what'll happen, um, and we've seen it, uh, is the people who are really eager to get hired can't get jobs because they will take one of these boot camps and you know spend ten or fifteen thousand dollars or more and get out and be unemployed. So Launch Code's figured out how to get you a job, and we basically guarantee that we'll get you a job, not some sympathy job, but like a market rate job. Um, but we meet that guarantee by basically showing, having a standard that's high enough that anybody who meets that standard can get hired. And then we give you free training to get you that standard. Now, it typically takes about six months to do, but it's a wonderful deal because if you get into a launch code class, you're basically guaranteed a job. What you are not guaranteed is that you can do the work. But everybody who does the work can get the job. Now, I'm not going to promise that you're the sort of person who's disciplined or smart enough to actually pass our test at the end. But if you are, I will guarantee you that if you pass that test, we'll find you a job. And not only will we find you a job, but we'll find you a job with, you know, we've got hundreds of employers who are eager to take launch code grads, um, even though they've got no work experience. And so that's a huge benefit as well, because we can get you your first job. And the first job in programming is the hardest one to get. Yeah. And after that, you have, have a resume and it's a lot easier yep. from there, right? Yeah. Yep. No, that that's really cool. Um, where, where can people uh, either get the book or learn more about you or Invisibly or Launch Code? Yeah, so I don't use social media. <laughs> so um, if you see a Instagram account or a, like I'm friends with Kevin who started Instagram and I'm friends with Jack who started Twitter and I don't use either of their products. <laughs> and um, I apologize for that. If you want to connect with me online, um, uh, jimmckelvey.com is where, you know, I sort of hang out, but I'm not a guy who spends a lot of time uh, living online. Uh, all my contents on at jimmckelvey.com. And then, um, uh, I, you know, hopefully I'll meet you in the real world somewhere because I try not to do too much stuff on the screens because it's just kind of soul killing for me. I know people love it. My son is in there. That's why I'm in the bedroom right now. He's, he's got all his friends that are, you know, taking headshots at people in Fortnite, and that's cool for him but not for me so uh jim is the place sounds good thanks very much yeah. for coming on jim that was really interesting that was super cool man thanks hey everyone thanks so much for listening i'd love to hear what you think of this episode as i'm always looking for ways to improve and make the show even better you can leave a review at the deli podcast in itunes or within apple's podcast app really appreciate your feedback and if you enjoyed this episode be sure to subscribe to my podcast on apple spotify google play youtube or wherever else you tune in to listen talk to you next week